Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, in college, Michelle and I were hanging out at a friend's house, and we were looking through his dad's DVD collection. It was back in the days when you actually had to own a physical copy of a movie if you wanted to watch it. And we found his copy of the movie, Dr. Zhivago. Now, we didn't know anything about the movie, but we looked it up and saw that it was listed on the American Film Institute's top 100 movies of the previous century. At least it was at that time. And so we thought, well, maybe we should watch this movie. And so we opened up the DVD case and flipped through all of the discs with the bonus features and the extras. And we grabbed the one that actually had the movie on it, stuck it in the DVD player. And the movie opened up in the most unusual way. It started off with a minute or two of just a single French word on the screen. Now, I had forgotten all of my high school French, so I didn't know what the word meant. But I figured this was a sign that this was going to be a sophisticated, artful movie. The scene began with uh, a beautiful landscape of kind of the snowy wilderness of Russia. And there was a train rushing through the landscape. And on that train, there was a family. Now, this movie was clearly one that was going to make us think because they never explained who this family was, where they were coming from or where they were going to. There, there wasn't even a scene where the characters kind of introduced themselves or said their name. So we were trying to figure out who these characters were and kept watching. And the whole time I'm thinking, you know, I wonder which one of them is the doctor, you know? None of them seems to be practicing medicine or anything like that. But the more I watched, the more confused I got. Now, this movie was beautiful. The cinematography was gorgeous and I enjoyed that. But as the story progressed, it just felt more and more random until it finally came to the very last scene. And in the last scene, two characters come on that we had not seen in the entire movie. And they have this conversation and you could tell it was supposed to be profound, summing up the themes of the movie and putting a nice end to the whole thing. But I didn't understand it at all. And then the movie was over. Now we turned on the lights and we looked at each other and we said, what just happened? Was this just kind of an artsy movie that we were too dumb to understand? We thought that until we actually went to go put the disc away in the DVD case. And we saw that there were actually two discs for the movie. Turns out this is a three-hour long movie, and so they had split it up into two different discs, and we had grabbed part two instead of part one. And that French word on the beginning of the movie, turns out in English it means intermission. We had watched the second half of the movie, and that was the reason that even though it was beautiful, we had no idea what was going on. There are a lot of people who read the Bible this way. They skip the first half and they jump in right at intermission and they wonder why they're so confused. Now, if you have never read the Bible before in your life, it does help to start with the story of Jesus because he's the main character. And so if you understand the basics of Jesus' story, that's a good place to begin. But once you get the basics of his story, you're going to have a hard time getting much further unless you learn something of the story that led up to Jesus. You're going to be reading the Gospels and you're going to always be asking questions like, what is this kingdom of God that he's talking about? Why is he always discussing the temple? What's the big deal about that? And he keeps bringing up people like Moses and Abraham and David. Like, who are these guys? If you've ever read the Gospels or something in the New Testament and you found it confusing, I want to give you good news. The reason it was confusing is probably not because you're too stupid to understand it. It's probably not because you're not spiritual enough to understand it. For a lot of people, the reason the story of Jesus is challenging 
is because there are references to the Old Testament, the story that led up to Jesus on every page of the New Testament. And if you've never had someone explain the Old Testament to you, or or you've heard some of the Old Testament stories, but never had someone fit them all together, you're going to find it a bit challenging. Now, around here at Christ Community Church, we work hard to remedy that. Uh, We, we, as a church, uh, really want to give people context for reading the Bible. One of the things we've done is four years ago, our church started a church-wide Bible reading campaign to read through the Bible. It's called Bible Savvy. In September, we're actually going to finish our first round of reading through the Bible as a church. Can you believe it? It's really, really cool that we've gotten this far. And as we approach the final books of the Bible, what we wanted to do was take this summer to remember and celebrate where we've been. And that's why the series this summer, we're going to be telling the entire story of the Bible from the beginning to the end, from creation to new creation. And we're calling the series, The Big God Story. Now, I personally am really excited for this series, and I think that you should be too. Uh, Even if you aren't following along in Bible savvy, even if you've never picked up a Bible in your life, this is going to be a great series for you. Uh, What we're going to be doing is taking all the different pieces of the story and putting them together in a way that actually makes sense. We're going to clear up a lot of misunderstandings about the Bible, especially about some of the things that are in the Old Testament that really confuse people. And along the way, here's what I'm most excited about. As we study God's story, you're going to look at your own story and see it differently. You're going to look at your life and your purpose in the world and discover this is what God has in mind for me. I'm also excited because I just find this stuff fascinating. I love looking at the big picture connections in the Bible. So I promise every week I'm going to show up excited to teach what we're talking about. Well, as we go through the series, I do have a couple of books that I'd recommend if you want to read a little bit uh, extra as we're studying all of this. The, the main one I'd recommend is the book, The Epic of Eden by Sandra Richter. This is my go-to book for anybody who wants to understand the Old Testament. It's a fantastic book. The other book is called God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. Uh, this book traces the story line of the Bible in a really helpful way. I've actually based some of the things we're doing in the series on this book. The third book is actually a book for kids, although I'd recommend it for adults too. It's called the Big Picture Story Bible. This kid's Bible, instead of telling all of the stories in the Bible kind of separately from each other, it actually shows how all the stories are connected to each other. It's basically a summary of this series in kid language. So this is going to be a great series and I'm excited for it. I hope you're ready. If you've got a Bible, open it up to the very first page. We're going to be in Genesis 1 and 2 today. And as we talk about uh, this story, what we're going to do is I'm going to share with you three ideas that we need to get right at the outset of the big God story that if we don't get, we're going to have a hard time understanding the whole thing. Now, the first idea is going to sound really, really obvious, but I think it's worth saying. One of the first things you'll notice when you open up the Bible, it talks in the beginning. It's sort of like it begins once upon a time. It turns out the Bible is a story. The Bible is a story. Now, maybe that doesn't need to be said, but in my experience, most people, they don't actually approach the Bible like a story. When you're reading a book, a big part of your experience depends on the expectation you have when you go into it. What what kind of book is this? What am I going to find when I open this up? Is it a a, a cookbook? Is it a a physics textbook? Is it a a mystery? What what is this book? And if you think that a book is going to be one thing and it turns out it's a different thing, that, that really gets confusing. So it helps to know that Catcher in the Rye is not about a baseball player. And the jungle is not an adventure in a rainforest. And to kill a mockingbird will not tell you how to get rid of that pesky bird that keeps you awake at night. So what kind of book is the Bible? What will you actually find in here? 
Now, a lot of people, they assume that the Bible is a book of rules. You open it up and you find, here are the, the rules for the game of life. This is what you should do, what you shouldn't do, what you must do. This is all the instructions of uh, what the commands are. Now, there are a lot of rules in the Bible, uh, but when you think about it, this is a pretty big book, and most of it, most of it is not rules at all. I, I would venture to say that on two-thirds, maybe 80% of the pages in the Bible, you would be hard-pressed to find anything that resembles a rule. So this is not really a book of rules. Other people assume that this is a book of information, that what you get in here is all the answers to the questions of life. This is kind of the, the divine data dump of everything that you need to know. Now, there is a lot of information in here, but if this was primarily about giving you information, it would probably read a little bit more like a philosophy book or a theology book. When you open up those books, they're organized in really helpful, neat categories. You know, you might find something like, how do we know there's a God? What is God like? What's the afterlife like? You know, what, 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 do we have free will? All sorts of questions like that. But the Bible isn't organized like that at all. Even when it has a lot to say about something, you find all the information kind of scattered across different places. There's no one chapter about, you know, God's attributes or human nature or ethics. The, the Bible is full of information, but it doesn't seem to be that that's the primary purpose. Uh, other people think that the Bible is a book of quotes. You, you go to the Bible and you open up and you find a little nugget of inspiration. A, a pithy little saying that encourages you at the start of your day kind of warms your heart and it looks good when you post it on Instagram with a waterfall in the background. Now, the Bible is a literary masterpiece and it speaks to the depths of the human soul. So there is lots of inspiration to be found here. But if that's the main thing or the first thing you're looking for here, then reading the Bible is going to feel like opening up a fortune cookie and having it read, Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king of Judah and he reigned in Jerusalem for 25 years. It turns out, that most of the Bible is just not that quotable. Now, other people get closer when they say, you know what the Bible is? The Bible is a book of stories. It's a book of stories. And there are tons of stories in the Bible. But here's the thing. The Bible is not a book of isolated, unconnected stories. All the stories in the Bible are connected in one grand narrative. And you can get one thing out of one story and, and, and it could be really meaningful. But if you don't put them together, you are going to miss out on the power and the point of the biblical message. You remember last year, last year when they were still putting out movies, you could still go to the theater to actually see one. Uh, last year when the movie Avengers Endgame came out, I had a whole bunch of people who came up to me knowing that I love the Marvel movies and they said, Clayton, I've only seen a couple of them. Can you tell me which movies I need to see in order to understand Endgame. And they were shocked to find that out of the 22 Marvel movies, you probably needed to see maybe 10 or 12 of them to even understand what was going on in the last one. They, they had seen individual stories, Captain America, Black Panther, and they had loved them, but they hadn't been following the big story that Marvel was telling through all the movies. This is what the Bible is like. It was written by dozens of human authors over many years in lots of different styles, telling a variety of stories with a huge cast of characters in lots of different settings. And yet, all of it fits together as one overarching story. You, you might call the Bible God's MCU, the Messiah Cinematic Universe. I, I'm sorry, I, I know that was terrible, but once I thought of it, I could not resist saying it. So there you go. One of the reasons that religion and Christianity doesn't work for a lot of people is they've been told that this is what it is. It's a collection of rules that you need to follow, information you need to learn, 
and trite little nuggets of inspiration to get you through the day. And if those things work for you, then great, then go ahead and be a Christian. But if you're not good at following the rules and you don't learn information very well and you think that stuff is sort of cheesy, then maybe you don't think you're interested in that. But here's what the Christian faith actually is. It is a grand epic story. And it's not just any story, it is the story. It is the true story of the universe. It is the narrative that encompasses all of history. It is the story of stories, the drama of dramas. And that's why it's so powerful. Because this story makes sense of all other stories, including your story. This story makes sense of all other stories, including your story. And one way of thinking of what it means to be a follower of Christ is this. It's to interpret your story in the light of the big story. It's to embrace your role as a character in the big God story. That's the first thing. Second thing you need to know from the outset of reading the Bible, if you're really gonna understand it, is this. The beginning is the end. The beginning is the end. Do you know what an I want song is? An I want song is in a musical when a character is first introduced. Oftentimes they will sing a song that reveals their inner motivation. So Dorothy wants an adventure somewhere over the rainbow. And Anna, she just wants to build a snowman with her sister Elsa, but it doesn't have to be a snowman. And Alexander Hamilton, he is ambitious. He is gonna shape history. And so he's telling you he is young, scrappy and hungry and he is not gonna miss his shot. Whenever you're getting introduced to a story, one of the key questions to ask is, what do the characters want? What's their motivation? Because it tells you where the story is gonna go. It tells you they're chasing after that. That's what the end is going to be. You, you can think of the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, as the Bible's I want song. It, it tells you what all of the characters underneath it all are pursuing for the whole rest of the story. The, the Bible actually has a word for the end goal of, uh, of, of what the characters are pursuing. The word is shalom, shalom. That word is often translated peace, which is a decent translation, but it doesn't capture the fullness of it. Because shalom is not just a, a ceasefire between enemies. It's not merely a feeling of calm on the inside. Shalom means something like wholeness, completeness, fulfillment. Here's the way one theologian put it. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. It is the way things ought to be. Let, let me read a description of Shalom from the first chapter of Genesis, verse 31. It says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Shalom is what all people are searching for. Sense of wholeness, completeness, something that makes you say the same thing that God said. Your soul cries out, this, this is very good. Now we, we go looking for that wholeness in all sorts of different places. And oftentimes the way we do it actually leads to more brokenness instead. But the desire, the drive behind it all is that longing for shalom. And it comes out in the stories that we tell. The greatest stories of all time, you know what makes them great? Is that they tap into some aspect of the human desire for, for shalom and wholeness. That, that ache we have for the way things are meant to be. But what does shalom actually look like? How is it described in Genesis 1 and 2? There are four primary aspects of shalom I want to highlight. And I'm going to use a little diagram to help us remember this. This is a chart that we're going to come back to in, in this series. The, the first aspect of shalom is this. God's place. God's place. 
If you read the very first sentence of the Bible, let's actually read this together. Genesis 1.1, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. God made a world. He created a physical material place, a place that you can see and touch and move around in. God made this beautiful, amazing, glorious world. And when God looks at it, he delights in it. He enjoys it. He, he, he says, this is very good. And as you read through the rest of Genesis chapter one, you see that within the world, as God is kind of organizing it, he makes different spaces for things. He starts off the first three days. He divides the day and the night and he separates the sky and the sea and he uncovers the land. In the next three days, he goes back through and he assigns everything a place. He puts the sun in the day and the stars in the night and the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and he fills up the land with plants and animals. He makes a place for everything and puts everything in its place. Even human beings. In the second chapter of Genesis, the story zooms in to, on one particular piece of real estate. In verse eight, it says this. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was humanity's first home, the Garden of Eden. And what I want you to see is that this was a place of both beauty and security. It talks about it being filled with trees that were pleasing to the eye, but also good for food, beauty and security. It's a place of abundance where every need is met, where Adam and Eve lacked nothing. They were secure in that place. You ever wonder why people like TV shows about remodeling or interior decorating? I think it's deeply rooted in this desire for a place that is both beautiful and secure. At the moment, most of us are looking for any excuse to get out of the house, but if you look at stories throughout history, there have always been people telling tales of people who are lost and finding their way home. From the Odyssey to planes, trains, and automobiles to the land before time to the prodigal son. I, I think Eden is the reason why we are desperate to find some way to feel safe, to feel secure. To, that we might have enough money or have good enough health or someone who will provide for us. We, we, we cling to these things. We hold on to these things. We chase them because that desire is rooted in the fact that we were made for the beauty and security of God's place. Here's the second aspect of shalom. God's people. At the end of the week of creation... God goes on after making this beautiful world. It says in verse 26, God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. He goes on in verse 27, it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. At the end, God makes people. And he doesn't just make one or two people. He goes on to bless them and say, be fruitful and multiply. He wants a lot of people in his world. And think about what happens if the people actually do that. They're fruitful and they multiply. It means that a few people will become families and they'll become extended families and they'll become tribes and villages and cities and cultures and nations. This is what God wants in his world. And this is so important because God is not just interested in a lot of individuals. He actually wants communities, big and small, because we were made to be together. 
We, we see this really clearly in the next chapter. When Adam is alone in the Garden of Eden and for the first time God says something in his world is not good. He says it is not good for the man to be alone. And, and so he makes Eve. Now, a, a lot of people, they'll see this story and they'll misunderstand it. They'll think, okay, well, the solution to loneliness must be marriage. And so uh, if I don't want to be lonely, I must find a spouse. But that's not what this means. What it means is God's solution to an isolated, independent life is community. We, we all need a team. We all need family. We all need people around us. We cannot be alone. This is why so many stories that people tell are stories about people coming together. People who are enemies actually learning to be friends and love each other. People who are different from each other coming together as a group. It's the reason why we get caught up in the rush of new love. It's why some people will do anything to fit in with a group. It's the reason why it's so hard to resist the pull of a clique or a gang or a movement or an empire that gives you a sense of family and belonging. We crave community and we search for it anywhere we can find it because we were made, we were made to be a part of God's people. The, the third aspect of shalom is God's purpose. God's purpose. I've always had a problem with the idea of paradise, at least the way I heard it described when I was growing up. Uh, most people talked about the Garden of Eden sort of like it was a, a vacation in a tropical resort. You just lay around all day and you eat whatever you want and it's just you and your beautiful naked spouse and if there's anything that you lack, you just ask for it and there it is. It's rest, relaxation, entertainment 24-7, which sounds awesome, right? At least for a couple of weeks. Because I always kind of thought down the line and I, I wondered, you know, wouldn't you ever get bored, you know? Especially after a few years or decades of that. I mean, I don't think you'd ever get sad in that sort of environment, but would you ever really get excited about anything? But what if that's not what Eden was actually like? What if God actually had a purpose, a mission, an assignment for people to do there? Look again at chapter one, verse 26. When God makes human beings, he says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And he immediately says the reason why he wants people so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move on the ground. And then verse 28 says, so God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The, the reason God made human beings is so that humans could rule God's world on his behalf. This is what it means to fill, subdue, and rule over the earth. It means to go out into the world and to make something out of it. It means to create something out of what God created. It means drawing out the potential that God built into the world. So that means finding wood and making it into a table or a boat or a cello. It means discovering peppers and making salsa. It means discovering silicon and making computer chips. It means playing around with sound until you have invented hip hop and, and jazz and rock and roll. It, it means taking uh, grain and crushing it into bread. It means uh, taking grapes and fermenting it into wine. It means exploring the world and discovering what's out there and making trade routes and developing economies. It means taking creation and turning it into culture. But we don't do this simply so that we can use the world. We're not there to exploit it. 
What God is sending us out to do is to actually take the world and cause the world and everyone who lives in it to flourish. This is the reason we were made in God's image. Being made in God's image doesn't mean that when God looks in the mirror, he sees earlobes and eyebrows. It means that we were made to reflect his character. That that our job is to go into every corner of the world and bring his love and his goodness and his glory and his beauty and his wisdom and his justice and his joy. That's God's purpose, to rule the world through humans who look like him. And God just doesn't send us out anywhere and everywhere. He actually takes each person and puts them in a place where he wants them to do this. Look at what he did for Adam and Eve in the garden. This is what it says in chapter 2, verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, Adam and Eve had a job in the garden. This wasn't a vacation. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Uh, God gave the entire planet to humanity, but to each one of us, he gives us just a little piece of territory, a little turf. Uh, For some people, this is literal land, but for all of us, it is some sphere of influence. There is some place, some arena in the world where God has sent you to work and keep it. Your home, your workplace, your city, your neighborhood, your, your field of expertise, your network of friends. God has purposely put you in a place where you have some influence so that you can take your corner of the world and make it reflect his purposes more than it does right now. You'll, you'll notice that in the garden, God gives just one rule to Adam and Eve. There, there's a lot of freedom in Eden. Adam and Eve have free reign of the place. They're the king and queen after all. But there is a command. And, and we're going to talk about the specifics of that command next week. But the thing you need to see right now is not to worry about, you know, what's the deal with that tree, but to recognize that even though Adam and Eve had great authority, they were also under authority. They they were rulers, but they had rules. Because they weren't ruling for their own agenda, they were carrying out God's purposes. You know why so many of us seek significance in our work? The reason we look for accomplishments, the reason we, we find uh, meaning in causes and making a change in the world, it's because that's what we were made for. We were made to crave significance because we're, we were made to carry out God's purposes in our world. The, the last and the most important aspect of shalom is God's presence. God's presence. On the seventh day of the creation account, When God has completed what he has made, this is what it says at the very beginning of chapter two. It says, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. But what does it mean that God rested? Get tired? Work week just took it out of him and he just needed a break? No. When it says that God rested, we shouldn't imagine God taking a nap or catching his breath. What we should imagine is a king resting on his throne. His kingdom is secure. It is in order. His reign has begun and he is resting in the place from which he rules. Or we should imagine a temple. It's finally been built. It's beautiful. And now the presence of God is coming down and it rests in the temple. This is what people in the ancient world would have thought of when they heard that phrase. They would think the universe is God's kingdom and so he rules over it all. 
The, the world is God's temple, and so he is present here to be worshipped. This is actually what made Eden so amazing. It wasn't simply the beauty or the food or the people that were around. It was the fact that God was present that made it perfect. This is actually one of the deep secrets of the human heart. The, the reason why we go from thing to thing and never feel satisfied. The, the source of our restlessness. The, the reason we've been chasing something all our lives and haven't found it is because we were made for God's presence. We, we were made to be known and loved by the one who made us and to know and love him in return. And, and since we've cut ourselves off from that, we, we go from thing to thing and we give ourselves to this and we give ourselves to that and we give ourselves to that, but nothing is ever enough. We can only be satisfied in him because we can only find rest in his presence. This is shalom. God's people in God's place, fulfilling God's purpose in God's presence. Underneath every I want song that humanity has ever sung is a longing for this. Now next week, we're gonna talk about what went wrong, why we lost this. But what I need you to know right now, and this is so key to understanding the Bible is this, is that the Bible is the story of how we get Eden back. The Bible is the story of how we get Eden back. This is the goal, bringing shalom back to the world. And so many people misunderstand this and they end up misunderstanding the Bible because of it. God is not trying to whisk us away to some faraway heaven. He's trying to make this world his place again. God is not plucking up a lot of random individuals. He is drawing us together in community to form a people again. God is not interested in helping you become a nice moral person who does some good things. What he wants is to completely transform you into his image so that you fulfill his purposes in the world. He's got a mission for you. And God is not looking to just kind of meet the needs of the things that you think will make you happy. He won't settle for anything less than your complete and total satisfaction in his presence. The whole story is about getting back to Eden. The beginning is the end. Here's the third and final thing you need to know at the start if you want to understand the Bible. The author is the hero. The author is the hero. When you read a novel, most of the time, the first character you're introduced to, turns out they're the main character, right? So it's really significant that when you open up the Bible, the very first sentence says this, in the beginning, God, God. Now, a lot of us, we forget that. So we, when we get to the Bible, most of us, we open it up and what we expect to hear is, here is what you need to do to solve your problems. We, we expect it to be advice or rules or information about how we can fix what's wrong with us and what's, what's wrong with the world. And we expect to find the stories in the Bible. Here's what they are. There are a bunch of people who did the right things. They got the reward. They, things worked out for them. And so if we follow their example, it'll work out for us. Problem is, you read those stories and those people they don't often do the right things. In fact, it turns out a lot of those people were kind of messed up. And you start to wonder, you wait, are the good guys actually the good guys? And we're going to discover as we go along, they, they really aren't. They're, they're screw-ups and sinners just like you and me. And that's kind of the point. They are not the heroes because God is the hero. This book right here is not about what we need to do to get back to Eden. This book is about what God has done and is doing to bring Eden back to us. I'm going to spoil something later in the story, but don't cover your ears for this because it's really important. 
in the book of John, one of the biographies of Jesus, there's a conversation that Jesus has with some religious leaders. They're people who have studied the Bible over and over again. They really know the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus says to them, he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. That's true. You think that in this you will find the way back to Eden. But he says, but these are the very scriptures that testify about me, about me. This is Jesus's point. You can know a whole lot about the Bible, but you will never really understand what it's about until you realize it's all about him. The whole story is about God and culminates when God himself shows up on the scene and solves the problem that we couldn't solve for ourselves. Now, that does not mean that you can just sort of skip from the Eden part to the Jesus part and forget about everything in the middle. There's some really important reasons why God went through that kind of Old Testament section. And to understand Jesus, you've got to understand how he fits into that story. But even so, we've got to keep Jesus in mind. Because the whole story makes sense when we realize he is the hero and we are not. This is actually one of the secrets to life, acknowledging that fact. Because not being at the center of the story is actually incredibly liberating. When life is no longer about my place and my people and my purposes, that's when we actually start to find shalom. When we say, I'm not the hero, but I know the one who is, that's when we take our place in the big God story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have invited us into the grand story that you're telling, that we have a place and that in it we can know that you are actually the hero. You're the one who does all the things that we have needed. And so because of that, we, we trust you. We step out of the center, God, and we say, you can be the king, you can be the savior. You are the one who's at the center of this story. And so we give you honor and praise for how great you are. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.